look tonight at the book of Leviticus, which is probably not a book that you get really excited about. It's the part of your read the Bible through in a year program that you usually bog down in, but it is about the worship of God, the holiness of God, and how we, as his people, are to live separated and holy lives in the world, but not of the world. There are two main themes in the book of Leviticus, one being that God's people are distinct, so they should live godly lives. There's a considerable portion of the book of Leviticus that is known as the holiness code. And in those chapters, God makes certain prescriptions for the people of Israel so that they were to live in a manner altogether different from those around them. The second main theme is that God's people are sinful, so they should offer sacrifices. God's called his people to righteousness. But the inevitable reality is that we are unrighteous people. There must be some remedy for this situation. This is the bad news, right, that we are sinners. And if we are sinners and God is holy and he desires to have fellowship with us, there, there must be something to bridge the gap for us. And so in thinly veiled ways, precursors to the gospel of Jesus Christ, reconciliation in terms of fellowship is afforded for the people of Israel by the sacrificial system. Exodus described the people of Israel and their deliverance from the sins of the Egyptians. But Leviticus speaks of the Israelites' deliverance from their sins. So God has brought them out of their Egyptian bondage and now provides for them through the instruction of the book of Leviticus how it is that they can slip the bondage of their own personal sin. Now again, Leviticus is usually a book that comes up in jest, right? People will talk about Leviticus as bedtime reading and such things as that. There are lots of lists, and there's a great, deal of de a great deal of detail. And there are elements in the book of Levit Leviticus that seem far off and distant, the kind of thing that has little to no bearing on our life, no longer under the covenant of Moses, but under the new covenant of Jesus Christ. But again, there is a great deal of insight to be found for us here. There, there is a writing technique that is used specifically in the Old Testament, but it's true in the New Testament in a few instances as well, it's known, the technical jargon is, a chiastic structure. This is a common Hebrew writing practice. And, and, and what that looks like is, is this. In English writing, typically, the most important thing you have to say, you say in the, in the introduction, in the main sentence of the paragraph, the first sentence. And then you provide some detail or some summary in the paragraph that follows, and then you summarize that in a concluding statement. I have written innumerable book reports reading the first and last sentence of every paragraph. And if a writer does his job well, you can understand a written work quite well in the English language reading the first and la last sentence of every paragraph. I'm not advising you or your children that that's a good method, but at times, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures, right? In Hebrew... The approach to, to paragraph structure is just the opposite. In the middle of the paragraph or in the middle of the writing itself is where the main point of the paragraph, paragraph rests. 
And what you'll do is you'll begin building up to that main point. And after the main point is stated, each sentence or phrase will in some way parallel the top half of the paragraph. It's really handy in interpretation. If you don't completely understand what sentence two in a paragraph is stating, often in Hebrew, you can move to the second to last sentence in the paragraph, and it will inform how you understand sentence number two. But there is this building up. It's an X pattern is the way the paragraph will structure itself. And even at times, single verses can do this. At certain times, entire books of the Bible can do this. So you find this kind of structural organization all over the Bible. Now think in terms of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, there's reference to the law, the writing, and the prophets. Even today in the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law, has special standing. These are the books of Moses. These were the first five books of the Bible chronologically, historically, and canonically. As we hold our Bible, the first five books you come to are the, uh, the books of Moses, commonly referred to as the Pentateuch. Now, some would argue that the structure of the Pentateuch lends credence to the notion that the book of Leviticus is central. Because within this structural framework, which is the middle book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And there are certain parallels that exist between Genesis and Deuteronomy, between Exodus and Numbers with Leviticus situated in the middle. So the argument is that although Leviticus is often set aside as unimportant or irrelevant to New Covenant believers, it actually sits at the heart of the Pentateuch, yet another indication that what God has to say in the book of Leviticus is of critical importance to us. I've broken Leviticus into two major sections, and I say I've broken it, but this, is not a un this formatting, this approach is not unique to me. There are two major sections in the book of, Levit book of Leviticus, in chapters 1 through 16, the focus is holiness in the tabernacle or the temple. And in chapters 17 through 27, the focus is holiness outside the temple or the tabernacle. In other words, this is how you worship in verses 1 through 16, or chapters rather, 1 through 16. And this is how you live in every compartment of your life in verses 17 through 27. There are some aspects of Leviticus that I think understanding really benefits us in how we understand the New Testament, and for that matter, the remainder of the Old Testament. If you've ever been reading along and found reference to some Jewish festival or uh, reference to uh, certain activities among the Israelites that seemed strange and distant, the book of Leviticus holds for us the answers to the questions that those passages can raise for us. Like I, I think there are probably very few Christians that understand the function of Passover among the Jews. Well, Leviticus helps us to understand the role and the function of the Passover. There are very few Christians that understand the sacrificial system at all, or even Sabbath regulations and what that looks like well observed among the Jewish community. There's a lot of ways that we can find ourselves informed and understanding better the teaching of the New Testament by understanding clearly what the book of Leviticus teaches. In the first few chapters 
there is an explanation of the sacrificial system. In fact, in chapters 1 through 4, the bulk of the sacrifices are covered. We won't labor long here, but I do want to work through them just so that we have some measure of understanding of how this all works. Leviticus chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. Then the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord from the livestock, you may bring your offering from the herd or the flock. Herd here is a reference to cattle or oxen and flock a reference to to sheep or goats. Verse 3, if his gift is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to bring an unblemished male. He must bring it to the entrance, uh, bring it to the entrance to the tent of the meeting so that he may be accepted, so that he may be accepted by the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering so it can be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. The idea of atonement is our sin being covered for. Our sin is ultimately atoned for by the blood of Jesus. But in a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do in the shedding of his blood, the letting of blood from the whole burnt offering would function as an atoning sacrifice. Verse 5, he's to slaughter the bull before the Lord. Aaron's sons, the priests, are to present the blood and sprinkle it on all sides of the altar that is at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then he must skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, will prepare a fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Aaron's sons, the priest, are to arrange the pieces, the head and the suet. That was a new word to me in this translation. That's, if you, we would understand this. Some of you gentlemen will understand this. When you're cleaning an animal and you get that hard fat around the liver and the kidneys, that is the suet. And some of your translations may render that in a way that's more easily recognizable than than here. Aaron's sons, the priests, are to arrange the pieces, the head, and the suet on top of the burning wood on the altar. The offerer must wash its entrails and shanks with water. The priest will burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a fire offering of pleasing aroma to the Lord. So this is the first and seemingly the most important sacrifice that is made, the whole burnt offering. And what's unique to the whole burnt offering is that the entirety of the carcass of the offering is consumed by fire. It's the only offering for which that is the case. Most people don't realize that the priesthood is provided for in terms of their food by the sacrificial system. There's a portion of the grain offering that is withheld for food for the priesthood. There is a portion of the Passover lamb offering that is withheld for the nourishment of the family that makes the sacrifice. There's a portion of every sacrifice withheld for the well-being of the priesthood. That's how they are afforded for under this sacrificial system. Now in verse 10, if his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from sheep or goats, he is to present an unblemished male. He will slaughter it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. Aaron's sons, the priests, will sprinkle its blood against the altar on all sides. He will cut the animal into pieces with its head and its suet, and the priests will arrange them on top of the burning wood on the altar. But he is to wash the entrails and shanks with water. The priest will then present all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a fire offering of pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now what's happening here in chapter 1, It is a description of burnt offering that is tailored to various financial classes. 
economic standing has bearing in the sacrificial system and the way it functions. In other words, if you could not afford to offer a bull as a whole burnt offering, you had the option of selecting an unblemished male sheep or goat from among your flocks. And you could offer that sheep or goat, unblemished and male, according to the prescription of verses 10 through 13. Now we won't read it all, but in verses 14 and following of chapter 1, there, there is a concession made for those who wouldn't have the financial means to even offer a sacrifice from among their flocks. A bull isn't even on the radar, let alone could they offer a sheep or a goat without that being damaging to the well-being of their family. So the concession is that they're able to make a burnt offering, a whole burnt offering of birds. He is to present his offering from the turtle doves or young pigeons. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you read of someone offering turtle doves or pigeons, it's an indication of one of two things. Either this is a family that comes from poverty, or it's a Jew that comes from a great distance. Offering of birds becomes far more common in the latter years of the Old Testament because so many Jews lived abroad and would only travel to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the prescribed feast, the pilgrim feast that would require them to travel there from some distance. Well, you can imagine the burden that would be created by traveling a great distance with a bull or a goat in tow. So you would have the option of purchasing in the temple courts pigeons or turtle doves to make your prescribed offering there within the sacrificial system. This is where the money changers become participants in the temple court, the money changers that are ultimately run out for what they come to represent within the temple court in the days of Jesus. So you can make a bull offering, you can make a sheep or goat offering, you can make a bird offering, a turtle dove or a pigeon, and then in chapter 2, the grain offering is described. These would be those given exclusively to agriculture as a means of uh, gainful employment or providing for their family, and I mean agriculture that, was, that would be exclusive of raising livestock. In chapter 2 and verse 1, the Bible says, when anyone presents a grain offering as a gift to the Lord, his gift must consist of fine flour. In other words, it is to be the best. He is to pour olive oil on it, put frankincense on it, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. The priest will take a handful of fine flour and oil from it, along with all its frankincense, and will burn this memorial portion of it on the altar, a fire offering of pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering will belong to Aaron and his sons. It is the holiest part of the fire offerings to the Lord. Over in verse 11 of chapter 2, the Bible says, No grain offering that you present to the Lord is to be made with yeast, for you're not to burn any yeast or honey as a fire offering to the Lord. You may present them to the Lord as an offering of first fruits, but they are not to be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma. From the very outset of the sacrificial system, yeast is representative of sin. Paul would say in his letter to the church at Corinth, a little Yeast leavens the whole lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. When the feast of um, when the Passover is instituted and the feast of unleavened bread is implemented, this is a reminder of the way that yeast permeates and infects and has impact on everything that it that it touches. Jesus warns his disciples, "Beware the leaven or the yeast of 
the Pharisees. Yeast always, leaven always has the connotation of, of sin and the way that it permeates everything that it touches in the Bible. There's reference here made to the first fruits. You may present them to the Lord as an offering of first fruits. In other words, you may give them as a tithe. When, when you tithe, when you give 10%, you're giving of your first fruits. We think about this in monetary terms because that's the way we're often compensated for our service. We're not compensated by a harvest from the field. We're compensated by a paycheck at the end of the week. But within an agricultural context, first fruits speaks to giving the first fruit of the field, the first fruit of the crop. And in a way, it is an offering, a sacrifice of faith and confidence. That is, this initial 10% of the harvest is brought forth from the field. God is going to remain faithful in providing uh, for the needs of my family or for uh, the business needs of, of my business in what remains of this crop. So what's being described here is the ability to give of your grain crop as a tithe, as an offering of first fruits, but not in a way that supplants or erases the necessity of the whole burnt offering as it's been described in the previous passage. There is a fellowship offering that is described in chapter 3. Look at verse 1. If his offering is a fellowship sacrifice, and he's presenting an animal from the herd, whether male or female, he must present one without blemish before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of the offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. Aaron's sons, the priests, will sprinkle the blood on all sides of the altar. He will present part of the fellowship sacrifice as a fire offering to the Lord, the fat surrounding the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat on them at the loins. He will also remove the fatty lobe of the liver with the kidneys. Aaron's sons will burn it on the altar along with the burnt offering that is on the burning wood, a fire offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So this is a different offering than the whole burnt offering. Again, the whole burnt offering is the only one where the whole carcass is consumed by fire. A part of that is kept back in the fellowship offering for the upkeep, the well-being, the nourishment of the Levitical priest. You may be reading this and thinking, where they're cutting off all the bad parts and throwing it in the fire, getting rid of all that fat. We are the only culture in the world that cuts the fat off our steak and throws it away when the meal is done, which is just mystifying to me. But, uh, th but in a Jewish framework, this would have been understood to have been the best of the animal. They, they're not throwing away on the fire the, the worst. What they don't, they're not culling what they don't want to have for themselves. They're giving to the Lord as an act of sacrifice the absolute best, not just the best of their herd, but the best of the animal as well. In chapter 4, the sin offering begins to be addressed. There are a number of passages in Leviticus that deal with making an offering for sin. Verse 1, the Bible says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites when someone sins unintentionally against any of the Lord's commands and does anything prohibited by them. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he is to present to the Lord a young, unblemished bull as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He must bring the bull to the entrance to the tent of the meeting before the Lord, lay his hands on the bull's head, and slaughter it before the Lord. The anointed priest must then take some of the bull's blood and bring it into the tent of the meeting. The priest is to dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. 
The priest must apply some of the blood to the horns of the altar of the fragrant incense that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. He must pour out the rest of the bull's blood at the base of the altar of the burnt offering that is at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He's to remove all the fat from the bull and the sin offering, the fat surrounding the entrails, all the fat that's on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat on them and the loins. He'll remove the fatty lobe of the liver with the kidneys just as the fat is removed from the ox of the fellowship sacrifice. The priest is to burn them on the altar of the burnt offering, etc., etc. So there's a tremendous amount of similarity in these sacrifices. You've already picked up on the repetition in each of these sections. The motivation is what distinguishes the, each sacrifice one from the other. The burnt offering is given as an act of worship. It is a sacrificial act, an act of celebration at God's provision and His deservedness of all our worship and praise. But in the case of the sin offering, this is an offering made in direct response to one's transgression, whether it's something they did willful, willfully or something they did unknowingly. And great detail is given to describing the circumstances under which sin offerings are to be made. In fact, in chapters 5 through 7, you have a variety of examples of, of reasons why sin offering might be made. To some extent, retribution is, is a, a factor in, uh, in the sin offering, but atoning sacrifice is always a major point of emphasis. Chapter 5, you have cases requiring sin offering. And then in chapters 6 and 7, there is specific instruction for the priesthood. What you've read in chapters 1 through 4 is essentially what the people are to do in, in this sacrificial system. But what you'll find in chapters 6 and 7 is a description of what the priests are supposed to do. There is in chapter 7 a, a brief passage on the ordination offering. This was an offering that was to be made in order to inaugurate the priestly ministry of someone in the line of Aaron. God has, uh, he has separated the tribe of Levi, the lineage of Aaron, as priest to God. They were to be the priests. They're the only ones who are acceptable as priests. It, it scarcely shows up in the Old Testament in terms that we understand but there becomes great controversy in the latter part of the Old Testament as to who is a legitimate priest and who is not. There's a great deal of history behind the Levitical priesthood in the intertestamental period, in that period of time leading up to the New Testament, that, that creates some really strange dynamics within the, the, the land of Israel, within ancient Israel, and it's a factor in, in why you have Caiaphas and Annas, who are identified as chief priest in the days of Jesus. There's a real back and forth. What ultimately happens is that governing authorities take over the land of Israel. At various times, Israel is under the control of various groups. They're under the Ptolemies for a season. They're under the Seleucids for a season. And by the time you come to the New Testament, they're ultimately occupied by the Roman Empire. But during the time of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, they actually bought their way into the, uh, the priesthood, not the Levitical priesthood, but supplanted the proper priesthood with a hireling of their own in order to find influence within the nation of Israel in ways that were sinful before the Lord. There's a whole background there that's really, really fascinating. But in order for into the priesthood, a sacrifice is to be made or was to be made, and that sacrifice was referred to as 
an ordination offering or an ordination sacrifice. Now, in chapters 9, uh, 10, and 11, the focus is on the priesthood. And there's a, there's a great deal of uh, discussion and detail here in these chapters. It, it's the kind of detail that you'll glaze over at in your quiet time reading. But we're given this brief narrative section in chapter 10 to help us to see and appreciate the critical importance of what is described here. The priest is to conduct himself in a very specific way, and to deviate from what is prescribed is a deadly and dangerous act. Chapter 9 talks about what the priest is to wear and how the priest is to conduct himself and how the priest is to maintain and to manage the sacrificial system. Then we come to chapter 10, and this is a thing that you find in the first five books of the Old Testament in what are referred to as the law books. You have these long sections of don't do this and don't do this and this is how you do this and this is the, the dimensions for building this and you think what is this all about and then you'll have this break where there's an actual story that's told. Sometimes it's difficult to, to make all of that fit logically but the way it works is a narrative will be situated within a legal text in order to demonstrate the importance of that legal text that surrounds it. So just about the time you're ready to glaze over at the details that are being offered in chapter 9, we get to chapter 10. Look at verse 1. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own fire pan, and put, uh, put fire in it, placed incense on it, and presented unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he'd not commanded them to do. Some of the older translations will translate or render that verse they offered strange fire. And there's all kind of conjecture about what was wrong with their offering. Were they offering something that was impermissible? Were they offering at a wrong time? What is behind this idea of a strange fire? The language of an unauthorized fire is probably more telling. It does not matter what they did. What matters is that they did something that was unauthorized. And lest we make the mistake of thinking that we come to God on our terms, Moses is careful to note that this ended in disaster for the sons of Aaron. Look at verse 2. They offered strange fire, and in turn, fire came from the Lord and burned them to death before the Lord. So Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord meant when he said, I will show my holiness to those who are near me, and I will reveal my glory before all the people. In other words, Moses provides a theological interpretation of this act of God's judgment. They offered strange fire. The fire of God fell. And Moses says, this is exactly what the Lord intended when he said, I will show my holiness to those who are near me, and I'll reveal my glory before all the people. We do not come to God on our terms. We come to God on his terms, or we do not come at all. Sometimes the language that is used in contemporary worship experience is so far removed from the, the picture that is painted in the Bible. People talk, sinful people talk about getting near the Lord, these, these ecstatic experiences of worship. When drawing near the Lord is everywhere in the Bible, a somewhat dreadful experience that strikes fear in the hearts of those who come near, especially when we come near with our hands dirtied by our unrighteousness. 
Nadab and Abihu, whatever it is that they did, sought to come to the Lord on their terms. They were not authorized to come in the way they came. And the result for them was their immediate death by the authorized fire of God. So it may seem that what is described in this section, chapters 9 through 10, really 8 through 10, is mundane and maybe overdone, and do we really need this level of detail? But these few verses, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 10, stand as a, as a monumental reminder of the critical importance of what God has prescribed here. And the principle remains the same. Our access to God is wholly different in that we come now not through a sacrificial system or through an Israelite priesthood, but through the blood of Jesus and the high priest of heaven who rules and reigns forever. But the principle remains. We must come to God on his terms or we will not go to God at all. There is but one way to God, and his name is Jesus. He is our forever sacrifice. He is our forever high priest. It is shielded under his blood that we may have access to the Father, but that is the only access we can enjoy. There is simply no way to get to God apart from Jesus. And this passage reminds us, lest we forget that if there were a way for us to get to God that was to shortcut the blood of Jesus, that kind of encounter with God is not the kind of thing you or I would want at all. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a vengeful, wrathful God. And the only insulation against that wrath we could ever hope to have now or in the great day of judgment is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There are remind, there is reminder after reminder in the book of Leviticus of the central importance, the critical nature of what Jesus has done for us in offering himself as our Passover lamb that the wrath of God might pass over each of us. Chapter 11 uh, begins a section uh, on the clean and the unclean, chapters 11 through 15. And it's, this is not necessarily about what is good or bad. There are some normal parts of life that can render you unclean for a season. If you are in close contact with a dead body, you would be ceremonially unclean for a period of time. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's something sinister at work. It may mean that someone within your home has passed away and you've been providing for their reasonable care in the last days of their life and their proper burial. If you give birth to a child or as a father are in proximity to the birth of a child, you would be rendered unclean for a season of time. These are not necessarily good and bad, good and evil kind of distinctions. It's ceremonial cleanness versus ceremonial uncleanness, and often blood is at the heart of one's cleanness or uncleanness. So chapters 11 through 15 describe those things which are clean and those things which are unclean. Chapter 11 is where you find the food laws. This is where you find a prohibition against pork chops and catfish and crawfish and shrimp. And I thank God every time I read the book of Acts that Peter had that vision 
and that the law of Moses has ceased its activity for us in so many ways, and a new door has been opened for our food, pleasure, and enjoyment. Those are the kind of things that you find in chapters 11 through 15. This is about God establishing a people unique to himself, and and these ceremonial laws, these clean and unclean distinctions, are a critical part in Israel's uniqueness in history. You know how you know how archaeologists know when they're mining Israelite land. When archaeologists are at work in the land of Israel, do you know how they know that they're at a point in in the layers of earth that represents a period of time when Israel, as a nation, occupied the land versus a period of time when Philistines occupied the land, or Hittites, or Canaanites? They know by the absence of pig bones in in the sediment of the land because Israelites didn't eat pork. It was prohibited for them. Israelites did not suffer to the extent that other nations did with skin diseases like leprosy and other common sicknesses in ancient history because of the ceremonial laws, the prescriptions that are made in chapters 11 through 15. So they may seem like not much to us, but these become critical roles in the land of Israel, distinguishing them from the nations around them. Chapter 16 is of great importance in the book of Leviticus, in the history of Israel, and for our understanding of the work of Jesus. We, we can't spend a great deal of time here, but it's worth noting that this is where what is referred to today as Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, is described. In chapter 16 and verse 1, the Bible says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two of, uh, of two of Aaron's sons when they approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place, behind the veil in front of the mercy seat, on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. What's described is the need that Aaron would come at the right time, under the right circumstances, and even later, with the right adornment, he must be adorned in the priestly garb, and he must come with the proper sacrifice. Verse 3, the Bible says, Aaron is to enter the most holy place in this way, with a young bull for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to wear a holy linen tunic, and linen undergarments are to be on his body. He must tie a linen sash around him and wrap his head with a linen turban. These are holy garments. He must bathe his body with water before he wears them. He is to take from the Israelite community two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron will present the bull for his sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household. Next, he'll take the two goats and place them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And after Aaron casts lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel, that is the scapegoat, he is to present the goat chosen by lot for the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot for Azazel is to be presented alive before the Lord to make purification with it by sending it into the wilderness for Azazel. So the way the Azazel, or scapegoat, which is much easier to pronounce, functions is that the sins of the people are laid on the head of the scapegoat, and this scapegoat is led outside the city and let go to be ravaged by predators and to carry away the sins of the people. 
So let's process this passage from our gospel perspective. This is the day when the sins of the people are to be atoned for in this sacrifice foreshadowing what Jesus would do through the shedding of his blood. Aaron, as the high priest, is to come at the appointed time. In the fullness of time, Jesus, as our great high priest, has come. And Aaron is to enter in to to this structure that represents the true temple in heaven. The book of Hebrews tells us that the tabernacle functions as a model of the reality in heaven. It is the shadow of what really is in heaven. There's deep interest on the part of the Jews that they follow all of these procedures so that everything that is done here on earth in the earthly tabernacle would pattern itself after what is unfolding in the heavenly tabernacle in the true presence of God. Aaron was to come properly adorned in the priestly Garb, and that garb was to undergo a, a process of ceremonially cleansing the garb such that he is clothed in holy garments. Jesus, as our great high priest, has come before God in the true tabernacle, clothed in his perfect righteousness. Aaron was only to come with the proper sacrifice. Jesus has entered into the true tabernacle, not only as the high priest, but bearing the offering of his own blood to atone for our sin, not annually, but once and for all. Aaron was to make his haste into the shadow of what was to come and to leave at the appointed time. But Jesus would enter into the true tabernacle as our great high priest and make that all-sufficient sacrifice and not leave again, but be seated at the right hand of God, an indication that his sacrificial work had finished, and indeed it had. Jesus at the cross not only bears our sin debt, affords us the atoning work of his blood, but functions as our scapegoat. Hebrews 13 reminds us that Jesus was carried outside the camp, outside the city, carried outside the camp to be ravaged by predators, carrying our sin away. Jesus is our Azazel. Even as our great high priest, he carries our sin away. All of the prescriptions of Leviticus 16 are met, they are fulfilled fully and finally in the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad for that? There's more here in the book of Leviticus. Chapters 17 and 18 deal with forbidden forms of worship. A nod again to Leviticus 10 and the death of of the sons of Aaron for offering unauthorized fire before the Lord. The kind of things that are covered here, witchcraft and Uh, various other pagan practices with regards to worship. Again, we worship God on his terms or we will not worship him at all. Chapters 19 and following are those chapters in Leviticus known as the holiness code. When New Testament writers, specifically Peter, say, be holy 
for I am holy, saith the Lord. They are referencing multiple verses in these chapters where God reminds the people again and again and again that he is holy and his expectation for his people is one of holiness. There are all kinds of very tedious examples from life that are cited in this passage that in some help us to understand the kind of life that God expects of his people as we walk before him, even now walk before him in righteousness. It's worth noting here because there are some prescriptions made in the book of Leviticus that we would not regard as binding for us. The ceremonial law of Leviticus has been fulfilled in Jesus. The the sacrificial system in Leviticus has been fulfilled in Jesus. To some extent, the moral requirement of the book of Leviticus has been fulfilled in Jesus and that the righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled in perfection by him. What we ought to ask when we read books like Leviticus in the Old Testament is not if this book is relevant to me, but how this book is relevant to me. And one of the many ways that Leviticus is relevant to us as followers of Jesus under the New Covenant is in helping us to understand the essential nature of holiness to the character of God. How it is incumbent upon us to seek to be holy even as He is holy. How it has been God's design from the very beginning that although we be in the world, we be not of the world. I I saw an illustration recently where a preacher described our position in the world as a boat tossed at sea. We don't jump out into the sea in spite of the fact that we may be tossed about by wind and wave. We are safely and separately as the people of God floating about in this great sea of chaos and evil and wickedness. But we have safely taken our place in the body of Christ. And our life ought to, exi- ought to exhibit our safety in the boat, our separation, our distinction from the waters of chaos and wickedness around us. I would encourage you, time won't permit tonight, but I would encourage you to spend a little time with the last few chapters in the book of Leviticus, specifically chapters 25 through 27. If you've ever wanted to understand better these various festivals that were unfolding in the New Testament, and they provide such context to the New Testament. There there are the development of certain uh, feasts and celebrations after the book of Leviticus that show up in some ways. One of of the passages that's really, there's some real insight into what Jesus is doing in John chapter 6 when you understand that that's happening against the background of Hanukkah or the Feast of Lights. That's not a festival that's established in the book of Leviticus. In fact, that's at the, at the end of the Old Testament that the Jews established for themselves Hanukkah as a celebration. It happens in December, and you see decorations and reference made to that even in our culture. That is unfolding when Jesus stands before the citizens of Jerusalem and says, I am the light of the world. In fact, it's the crescendo of Hanukkah. They're raising the light in celebration of the festival of lights. And Jesus says, by the way, I'm the light of the world. But there are a number of other points along the way, specifically in the Gospel of John, but really in every Gospel and on into the New Testament letters and the book of Acts, 
we're understanding how these festivals are unfolding, it sheds a great deal of light on what's happening in the background uh, to these events as Jesus dies for our sins, concurrent with the Passover celebration and is raised from the dead on the third day, which was the, the, the festival or celebration of first fruits. You would give of your first fruits on the third day of the Passover celebration. Jesus is raised from the dead on the third day as the first fruits of all who would be resurrected from the dead in him. The Spirit of God falls at Pentecost, that celebration, 50 days after the Passover celebration. There are all these connections that are being made, and, and they can be mystifying for new students of the Bible, but you'll find some explanation as to how they unfold in those last chapters of the book of Leviticus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for the preciousness of your holy word. God, we're reminded tonight as we read these ancient words that indeed you have spoken. What a privilege it is, Lord, that we would have occasion to look into the law of God, even from the great distance of these many years. God, you have blessed us in that you've not only spoken, but you have preserved your word through the ages, God, that we might know of your character, of your goodness, of your perfect righteousness, and your intense desire to share fellowship with your creation. God, we thank you that you have loved us so much that you've given us shelter, a remission of sin, apart from the perfect sacrifice. We've no hope of redemption, of forgiveness, of reconciliation with God. In fact, to meet you would only end for us in disaster. But God, in great mercy, you've shown faithfulness, love, and compassion, and have washed our sins away by faith in Jesus. Thank you, God, for this great gift. We pray these things in his name. Amen.